All right, well, if there's anything we've learned in the last couple of years, it's that we probably shouldn't trust the science. You might be looking a little squinty-eyed uh, at people when they come to you in white coats giving you uh, orders from on high. Today, we're going to jump in. We've got uh, a guy who's really looked into this stuff in the field of global warming. And then in our overtime segment, we're going to do the same thing with COVID. We have an incredible culture here in the state of Alabama, but our politics and public policy don't reflect the people of Alabama. Media drives culture. Culture is what drives politics and public policy. Welcome, everyone, to 1819 News, the podcast. I'm Brian Dawson, CEO of 1819 News and host of this year's podcast, where we are in pursuit of a free and flourishing Alabama every single week. We've got a great episode for you this week. We have Dr. Krishnan Chatur, the Chief Technology Officer at Gene Capture. He has a background in chemical engineering in uh, Andrea Tice uh, of 1819 Radio News. I uh, had interviewed him um, really with some of his opinions on... Uh, how pre-approved narratives corrupt science, specifically in the climate change world. Uh, but he has an interesting background growing up in India, um, and we're going to hear his personal story. Then we're going to dive into those how uh, how pre-approved narratives corrupt science. Uh, and for our overtime listeners, those of you who support us financially, uh, we will do a segment on those pre-approved narratives as it, as it applies to COVID based on his opinions. Um, so I think all of this is going to be really good. And before we jump in, I want to remind you guys, uh, no matter what podcasting platform you're receiving this on, um, subscribe, follow, like, whatever that option is so that you're getting notifications, uh, and you can click a bell on a lot of them to make sure you're getting notifications whenever we publish content so that you're getting notified, uh, of these, maybe you're getting them in an email or however you're getting it. But if you go, uh, subscribe, that actually helps us leave a five-star review, uh, tell everyone how much you love the podcast. Cause we know you do. Uh, that helps us get our message out to as many people as possible. So please do that. Uh, and if you haven't already signed up to become a member, uh, please do that today on the website, 1819news.com. Click become a member. Membership start as little as $5 a month. Uh, that support goes to helping us uh, do what we do, which is uh, shining a light and telling the truth, uh, come what may. So uh, without going into any more of that, we'll welcome in uh, our distinguished Guest, Dr. Krishnan Chatur. Doctor, how are you? Good. Yeah, Thank I'm you. Glad, glad to have you. Um, so we love to um, go into story at 1819 News. I like to hear right. people's stories usually have to do with who they are and what they do. Sure. It, it always ties in together, it seems. And so you obviously have a background in chemical engineering. You're a chief technology officer at Gene Capture, which is medical diagnostics. Yeah. Um, and so that's all really interesting. And then you've got some really interesting opinions as it comes to global warming and things like that, that we'll get into. But, um, I want to hear your story, uh, where you were born. Tell me about your parents. Uh, it just sounds really interesting from what I've talked to you about. Yeah. Um, I was born in a small village in the Southern part of India. Uh, and then, um, almost immediately my, um, uh, mom and dad moved to Bombay, which is called Mumbai now. Yeah. And that's where I grew up. Pretty yeah. much, uh, and then I went to school in in, in Bombay, and uh, college uh, towards an engineering degree at IIT Bombay, and then I applied, and I want, always wanted to teach, so I wanted to get a graduate degree, and I landed up coming to Rice University in Houston, Texas, and then got my degree there, and then landed up working at Columbus, Ohio, Battelle for about six years. Spent about a year at uh, Case Western Reserve University, and then um, 
was fortunate to be hired at the UAH in chemical engineering, yeah. uh, which I was there for about 27 years almost, um, during which time I started, helped start a gene capture and, you know, lots of things which I'm happy to share with you. Okay. Stuff, yeah. But um, tell me, what was it like growing up in India? I mean, I think, you know, a lot of times we who've lived in even maybe not the richest state like in Alabama or, you know, wherever anyone grew up that, that, that may be listening here, it was in America. Uh, there's probably um, just the incredible wealth that we bathe in that we don't even realize, right? We're swimming in this sea of prosperity and we don't even know it. What was it like uh, growing up in India? Talk a little bit about just, you know, not having running. I mean, everything you and I kind of discussed. You know, that's interesting. Um, you're right in the sense that I see so many people around me really not appreciating what we have. I mean, you can go to the poorest county in the poorest state in the United States and find things that are just astonishing in terms of what people are able to afford and how they live and so forth. So... To me, it's surprising why they don't, why they take it for granted, what we have. But I mean, to, to turn back the clock a little bit, I, as I said, we grew up in the southern part of India. And I, of course, my dad had to work in Bombay, so they moved there. But we used to visit family back in uh, Kerala, southern part of India, every year and for different family functions or whatever. And I, my, I know the home my mom and dad grew up in. No running water, no you know, electricity, um, and outhouses and stuff like that. And they used to use either wood or cow dung or something for fuel. And um, the water was from a village. Uh, I used to actually draw the water, I remember yeah. growing up. So, so, and so, so you can ask them why. And the reason was because energy was expensive. Yeah. If they simply did not have access to it, or if they did have access to it, it was expensive. Yeah. So a few people in the village maybe had electricity and things, but most people didn't. So I watched that. So uh, over time, you know, uh, I mean, there was no uh, electricity, all that stuff. And then over time, I remember as more, there was more access to fossil fuel-based energy and fossil fuels itself, life improved. So to give one example, the fertilizers that come from natural gas from nitrogen fixation allowed a higher yield in plant, you know, f fruits and vegetables and so forth. And so I noticed, for example, that the vegetables and other things became plentiful and less expensive. Um, I noticed that um, electricity started becoming available. Um, and at one time, uh, natural gas, liquefied natural gas became available in cylinders, as it were. Uh, yeah. uh, people may here may not even know that, but in cylinders. And so anyways, so to, to, to move to Bombay, that was also in Bombay, where we had to get... So, so the, the home that I grew up in Bombay, we did not... We had electricity first, but we did not have natural gas piped in. We had just to get the yeah. cylinder. Um, and But for many, many years, we did not have a refrigerator at home. One, because uh, even refrigerators were expensive then, yeah. okay, relatively speaking. That is compared to, it, I, I'm talking about in terms of the purchasing power, what my mom and dad had, a uh, uh, refrigerator was expensive. But again, over time, that became less expensive. So then we got a refrigerator. And then of course, then my mom and dad later got TV and so forth. But if I were to go back and look at the common factor, the factor is, 
less expensive energy in all different forms, electricity, gas for cooking or cooling and, you know, all that stuff in there. Uh, and so I really appreciated how the, so, so again, going back to the natural gas, several years after the cylinder, uh, we got natural gas piped into the house in Bombay. So my, we didn't have to lug the cylinder yeah. <laughs> to places. So that is amazing. So I guess my point is that I've seen an amazing improvement in how we lived from you know the village in Kerala and even in Bombay um, and what we had and what we then what we had what we did not have and what we had later and how our lives improved yeah. and I trace it all back based on my own education my own teaching and things like that to energy it's really the energy poverty that is the big problem and certainly in India where I grew up it's much better now but also in really many many parts of the world so oh one thing I do want to mention is that I, I don't want to make it look like we were really destitute or anything. We were materially poor, but resource-rich otherwise, because yeah. my my mom and dad were very resourceful, that we never felt a lack of things we needed. Though it's, it's amazing how they managed it, frankly. I don't, I don't know. They, yeah. they managed it. So we never felt a lack of something, even though I knew we did not have many of the things my a lot of my richer friends had. Yeah. So again, so so bottom line is that I saw the change in living and living standards because of the access to electricity, you know, natural gas, fuel in, in different forms and so forth, and fossil fuels. So, so what, yeah. What, what do you say? So, what is the lesson? Would you say for the, our listeners, uh, folks are are tuning in as someone who moved here from what was a third world country, being what you did, now having lived in America yeah. as long as you have. What is the what do you, what would you say is the lesson? The lesson is that um, access to energy is maybe the most important thing we can make sure. That is, we want to make sure energy is plentiful, that it is not uh, made expensive because of regulations, because the state can make it enormously expensive. Yeah. And so it's nothing to do with supply and demand or core economic principles. So if I have to say one thing is that don't mess with the market. Yeah. If the market is willing to sell whatever it is, gasoline, diesel, natural gas, whatever, at a price and people can afford it, you know, let the market work. So that's my biggest lesson. Don't mess with the market. And, you know, people's lives would improve. Yeah. However they decide to use the resources. It's not yeah. for me and you to tell them. Yeah. So one thing, energy, access to energy. Now, that also translates to access to running water, to pure water. I mean, the whole shebang, pure air, all that stuff. Yeah. So I'd say energy access yeah. is absolutely critical. Well, it's really interesting because I think we, at a, at, a, at a core level, at a base level, we as humans understand that to some degree, that that access to that energy. Now, it's been so prevalent in our lives that we, that we don't necessarily know what it looks like if we don't have it. But I think we all know, okay, you have to have food, water, shelter to survive, clean air, clean water, oh, clean environment. But then the, the environmentalist people have come in and then kind of taken over this we're going to get clean water. We're going to regulate your energy. We're going to regulate your air. We're going to regulate your this. We're going to regulate you there, that. And, you know, Reagan's favorite saying is, you know, the eight scariest words ever is I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> I don't know. Right. And so these are the people that are now regulating our water, our air and, and all these other things. And specifically the, the electric car situation right now that they're trying to force upon us is absolutely absurd. I agree with you. Um, 
So it's it's just it's very interesting. And 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 you know, me and my tinfoil hat and conspiracy theory thinking sometimes is they want to they know that these resources are what people need, and so that's why they want to control them, centralize them. Um, and then they control everything. But I, I think I agree with your conclusion. The question yeah. is why, and, yeah. and you know it's hard to figure out what's in people's minds. I guess, but to go back to the issue of um, energy and things like that, um, I think you know we take it for granted what we have certainly in the U.S. And I think we tend to therefore forget. And one consequence of how when societies become wealthier, yeah. they start looking at other things around them. So this environmentalism thing started because people became wealthier. And so there's nothing wrong in wanting to better environment, in yeah. water. Hey, listen, I'm all for it. But my complaint about that, my, not complaint, but absolutely you need better water, better all that stuff in there. My complaint about this stuff is some of the campaigns the net effect of what they do is to strangle the the opportunities for poorer people elsewhere. Yeah. So, um, so one of my favorite authors is Bjorn Lomberg, who's in Denmark, and he says, you know, let's say about eight billion people in the in the world. About a billion people have yeah, access to most things that we can imagine, and almost six to seven billion people do not have enough energy that we we use in the U.S. to run a refrigerator. They just don't. Yeah. And so by going gung-ho about some of the things in the U.S., maybe even with good intentions, we are strangling the opportunities for the poor people to get what we have taken for granted. Yeah. And that's my complaint. Uh, listen, I now that I'm here, it's like I want better. I want you know all that, which is true. But I don't forget that there are still 7 billion people out there who are still struggling. And so that's my question, yeah. point about the access and energy. So let's not make yeah. it more difficult. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. yeah. So when you spoke with Andrea Tice, uh, who yeah. is our radio news correspondent, she also does a podcast called The Daily Detail. Yeah. Um, she really jumped into uh, climate change, the, the big narrative that's yeah. pushed from obviously one side of the aisle, though it kind of gets into both. Um, and, it, and to me, it's just this giant lie that's been foisted upon us and we've all just gobble it up. And so why don't you Give us your opinion yeah. um, on, you know, as someone who has the background that you do, the experience that you have, uh, your opinion on global warming. Yeah. Well, let me back up a little bit by saying I'm not, an, as I told you, I'm not an expert in the yeah. area, but I have read enough. I'm an engineer. I write models. I develop models. So I sort of understand that. And there are a few people that I trust who I read on a regular yeah. basis. And I've talked to them and tried to understand what the issues are and uh, you know the climate, things like that. So there are a few key factors involved in it. Yeah. So the one factor people talk about is the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And it is increasing. It has been going up for many, many years. There is no doubt. I mean, th that's not questionable. Yeah. It's somewhere in the region of 400, 410 parts per million, as it is called. So 0.04% of the atmosphere and then growing is carbon dioxide. Now, carbon dioxide is what's called a global, uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a gas that is necessary to trap the heat. And so if there is way too much carbon dioxide, it could trap more heat. And so in principle, you could have issues with temperature balances and so forth. So, um, so that, I mean, it, it is a global warming gas, as it were. Yeah. But carbon dioxide, and carbon dioxide is primarily created because of human activity. 
Yeah. No doubt about that too. I don't have a question about it. Where my concerns are is the um, alarmism that is coming and people are taking this limited amount of data trying to develop models and then making the models you know make predictions 50 100 years indicating it's going to be you know earth is ending in 5 years or 10 years and things like that which is wrong actually i mean people have uh, taken apart this models and uh, concluded that it's alarmism it's not real yeah. they're making things up so some of the more sensible scientists i've read essentially say yes the earth is warming um but there is no question for alarm one because humans have always adapted so let's assume everything's the we are told about the uh, climate stuff is true co2 is increasing because you're using fossil fuels all that stuff whatever but even with the increase in the stuff what the scientists are saying is there is no cause for alarm we have plenty of time to do adjustments and you know how we live and you know all that stuff is true what really irks me is that people have used some of the data to draw conclusions that are either flat out wrong or fraudulent and so they tend to confuse the public about what may be going on i'll give you one example of um uh why we shouldn't worry about quote unquote global warming let's assume that it it happens the temperature is going up and so forth so I, bjorn lomborg was the one that uh, mentioned this long time ago and he said that if you take a look at the number of people who die every year of either extreme heat or extreme cold more people die of cold than of heat i mean it's just a fact yeah. now people might argue and yell and scream about it but that's just a fact and so if there is global warming the stuff in there you might see a few more people die in the summer and the heat stuff in there but far more people will live in the cold <clears throat> that is a mean it's good to have anybody die by the way that's not what he's saying yeah. so cold kills more than heat so it's like so he says you know what are you guys so upset about in one sense and <clears throat> related to that i remember there was a journal named lancet lancet and they published a paper or a figure in which they were using they were showing that data on this graph to show how many people die of heat how many people die of cold and what is appalling about that figure this is lancet a british medical journal and what they did was to change the axis on the cold to make it look as if the number of people dying in heat were about the same or bigger than the people who are dying in the cold and you have to look very carefully at the what's called x axis so this is what i'm talking about you know nobody will argue with data things are happening things will change we need to adapt but they are making things up they're confusing the people and therefore the object the final result is to strangle the availability and the price of fossil fuels energy yeah. and that's what gets to me yeah not you know yeah humans always adapted so i'm never worried about some of the changes people are talking about yeah so i mean yeah and and there's so much and so yeah. that's an interesting thing i never thought about that whole idea yeah. that more people actually die from the cold yep. than they do the heat you um, need to look them up don't yeah. trust me don't trust me on anything i say today okay go look them up and i i mean i on a different what, what is his name again 
his name is Bjorn Lomborg. He's yeah. part of what's called a Copenhagen Consensus. Okay. And the journal I cited is called Lancet, L-A-N-C-E-T. I don't remember the uh, issue. Yeah. Uh, and they were called out, and then they had to fix it. But it is like a blatant attempt at trying to, uh, you know, confuse the public about what is going on. Anyway, but. so in all your studies, yeah. with your background and the work that you do, and obviously some of your hobbies are looking into this kind of stuff. <laughs> how much of this do you see where science is being driven by narratives rather than by data? That's in, in, in certainly climate science, climate, call it climate change and global warming, whatever. A lot of it seems to be. And again, this is also based on, um, and I, uh, there was recently a paper um, where the author submitted something to a journal, and then he wrote about, you know, he said uh, he wrote something, he wrote it in a way to make it, quote-unquote, acceptable to the, to, to the journal for publication. And then later wrote about the, his experience. Yeah. And he said, you know, this is what has happened. Climate science, you're not allowed to diverge away from what is considered to be, quote-unquote, the truth. Yeah which is the most bizarre thing I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. Because in science, one person can stand against the entire world. Yeah. That's the way science is. So for somebody to say, you know, 97% of scientists or something can have a consensus, it's, excuse the expression, it's nonsense, yeah. complete nonsense. Yeah. You don't ever say that. You're destroying science by that. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that um, the, um, the, the the way some of the journalists publish or force people to write things, it has become highly political. Uh, it, the, in, in the climate, quote-unquote climate uh, science, climate uh, change, whatever you want to call it. And so uh, there are certain areas like that where people do not accept papers if you go against some conclusions, for example, or say something and somebody's going to say, no, you, know, you can't say that. Uh, if in fact there was a YouTube recently banned a video in 2023 of somebody talking about some results that happened like a few months ago because they've decided that there are something they just won't, um, you know, publish. Yeah. And so, so to me, it's always, uh, science is where science is messy. The process is messy. Yeah. People publish, sometimes they make mistakes, sometimes they commit fraud, maybe, not as often, thank goodness. But you cannot force consensus. It's not like there is one sage sitting on top telling you what you should think or not think. Yeah, but Um, there is now. Well, in certain fields, there there should never be. Yeah, but right now I feel like there is. Uh, But even then, we are finding, people are finding ways to break out. Yeah. So um, uh, Twitter has been one place where... I was going to say decentralized media has been huge. (laughs) Right. And it has been a place where, um, and, and there are some people I follow on Twitter, you know, in, in this area where they've been able to publish their stuff. Not everything they publish is right, by the way. I, I can't agree with them. Yeah. But they're allowed to say it. And then if they say something kooky, you know, they're going to say, hey, he's a nut. But let's do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I remember, um, um, I mean, there are many, many examples in science where if people, uh, when people, if, when people do not allow something to be done, but the person is strong enough to say, I'm going to do it anyway because I believe in it, Changes amazing, the world. amazing things happen. Changes the world. Yeah. Um, so, so one example of that is, you may, you may know this already, about a guy in Australia, I think. Um, he, 
he said something like, I know bacteria causes ulcers. And people said, what? Are you nuts? People thought he was insane. So, and he tried to get some funding and donation and not, nothing happened. So what he did was he, he took some bacteria, he swallowed his bacteria, he got the ulcers, and he used some antibiotic and he quote-unquote proved that this ulcers because of the bacteria. To make a long story short, the guy got a Nobel Prize in medicine <laughs> years ago. And, and so but there are examples where the... Um, uh, people not being allowed to say something or do something um, is, uh, if the person is strong enough, yeah. he's going to say, the hell with you guys. I'm just going to do it anyway yeah. and prove to you something. But I'm more worried about the hundreds of other people who get discouraged. Yeah. You know, not all of us have the strength of uh, the people who can stand up to the mob. And so I think we need to really, really look at science, the scientific process, allow <clears throat> debates, allow discussions, you know, open up the stuff. You know, one person doesn't know, doesn't have the whole truth, nothing but the truth. They just don't. And the saying that's been real big, whether it's climate, whether it's COVID, and in our overtime, we'll talk about COVID and how this applies because it's a one-to-one, Yeah, um, is trust the science. And it's like, well, no, that's not how science no, works. The it whole doesn't. idea is to test the science, not trust the science. In fact, if anything, I'm going to say distrust the scientist yeah. at all times. Yeah, It's the reverse of what he just said. Yeah. said no, a scientist is not to be trusted. And yeah. so, no, something went off the rails. Yeah. You know, I, I wish I knew what it was. Or why. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What versus yeah. why. Yeah. No. And I mean, I have theories. I think that there's a, you know, uh, I do think there's a, a globalist, you know, coup, as it were, that's trying to centralize government, you know, new world order, whatever you want to call it, um, that are trying to make inroads into every industry at the very tops. And then they're working together. <clears throat> and in order to do the things they need to do, they need to develop consensus around things and force people to fall into that consensus. Uh, and then when you have the the nerve to stand up and say the <laughs> emperor has no clothes on, they try and destroy you. But, you know, there are strong ones that stand there watching Elon right now, which yep. is this is it's 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 the same vein but it's different it's not necessarily science that we're dealing with the the stand that he's making right now where he is not allowing advertisers to dictate his whether right. he's going to censor or not on twitter right that is so big we yeah, we owe that man so much yep um what he did by buying twitter then doing twitter files yep and then now making the stand where he's you know telling advertisers to go F themselves. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> it is. Uh, the courage that he has and the, and the losses he's willing to take so that we have a public square so that conversations can be had. Correct. Because that's the only time that we actually break out of this fake consensus into actually, then why does anyone, you know, there's got to be a weird motive that would make anyone want to come to a conclusion that isn't real. Why would anyone ever, like, I always want to be operating from, from truth, not my... Yeah, it's, you know, uh, th that puzzles me, to be honest with you. And yeah. the simplistic explanation is it's one in which people have a need to make sure that they can control what other people do. And when they don't, they say, wait a minute, I'm not telling you what you should say and you're saying something different and it bothers them. But science has never been about that. Yeah. I mean, at least the United States has never been about that. We've never been a country, and I'm speaking now as an American now, by the yeah. way, I, I, I take this country. You don't tell Americans and stuff what you should think or do and believe in. Right or wrong. I and mean, there are yeah. some total idiots in the U.S., certainly around the world. But we allow the 
possibility of people being wrong and you know all that. So yeah, I mean it's distressing. You don't want to have conformity. Yeah. You just don't. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there's a lot I want to go into that's yeah. going to revolve around COVID, but I want to yeah. save that for the overtime. Um, as far as it pertains to global warming, um, I think the the phrase that I used was pre-approved narratives corrupt science. Um, yeah. I read something, I think that you were featured in it or something on Wall Street Journal. I don't know exactly I, where I saw that. But the, the article was titled, How Pre-Approved Narratives Corrupt Science. Yep. And so, I mean, any last words with, with uh, climate change, global warming, whatever you want to call it, and, and how pre-approved narratives are corrupting that? Well, essentially, you know, uh, the, 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 the more core issue really is science and scientific debate, whether it is global warming or biology or anything like that, that's a key. Yeah. So um, if, if in fact the, the change in climate is going to destroy the earth in five years, I want to know. Yeah. I mean, you know, I want to get ready. Uh, if that's not the case, I also want to know. Yeah. And so I want the truth about it and make my own decision. And by the way, scientists have been wrong. And that's what really bothers me, at least in the climate change stuff. There is a lack of humility about what the knowledge is about making predictions 50, 100 years from now, even when they've been proven to be wrong. That's what gets to me. It's like, wait a minute, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you said there was going to be global cooling and Time magazine had a, you know, big front page cover years ago. And there were stories about how by 19... 70 or 80, there's going to be no more snow on the ground. I mean, you, yeah. you can go back in history. But none of that seems to matter to people. Yeah. And I'm thinking, how could you not have any shame in at least acknowledging that your predictions are wrong? Yeah. So today you could be wrong. I'm not saying I know you're wrong, but you could be wrong. Why yeah. don't you accept the fact that you could be wrong? Yeah. So this, it's science. It, yeah. uh, let have humility. Um, you know, epistemic humility, as it's called, and let people talk, and that's how science progresses. Yep. Yeah, no, we're supposed to be covered in water right now in Alabama. <laughs> well, it, yeah, I mean, there's just so many stories like that about people um, not really recognizing it. In fact, one other, um, if you have time, I'll mention one other sure. story. Um, you may have heard about, you know, Paul Ehrlich is? It's my favorite story. Yeah, no, I, I know that I can't place him, but I, I know I've heard the name and have read some. So so a favorite story that I just tell my students about it, too, it's like um, Paul Ehrlich, and there is a economist at the University of Maryland called Julian Simon. And so, um, so uh, I forgot the why it, you know, what happened. And then, so Paul Ehrlich is what's called, um, he's been talking about the earth not having enough food and, people in India starving and stuff for his entire life. Yeah. And, and the fact that he's been wrong makes absolutely no difference to him. He just keeps saying the same old people keep believing SOS, him. whatever yeah. it's, right? So many, many years ago, he um, made a prediction or he was talking about something and he said, we're going to run out of copper, Paul Ehrlich said, and um, us, or maybe a few other minerals. So Julian Simon, who was an economist, and he's one of my favorite economists. And he said, okay, Paul, let's make a bet. So let's take a basket of 10 um, commodities slash metals, I forget what it were, basket of 10 things. Let's calculate the price of that today. And I will make the bet that 10 years from now, the price of those things will be l less than what it is today. 
And Paul Ehrlich said, no, it'll be much higher because we're going to run out of copper, we're going to run out of zinc, we're going to run out of whatever. Anyway, they made the bet. Paul Ehrlich lost. And Julian Simon won. And Julian Simon did not know enough about what the future is going to be. But what he knew was that he said, there is only one unlimited resource in the, in the entire universe. It's the human mind, ingenuity. Yeah. What he said was, I don't know what's going to happen to copper. I'm, I'm making this up now. I yeah. don't quite know. I don't know what's going to happen to cap copper or whatever. So, so one thing that happened is that when copper became scarce, people discovered other materials to use, yep. fiber and stuff. Or they discovered more copper. Yeah. So Julian Simon's point was never, ever bet against human ingenuity. Wow. Yeah, I mean, he lost. But he's still out there claiming, I think he's out there. The yeah. same thing. Um, and related stuff is, I have a book published in 1950 or something, I forget what it was. In that, there is a figure in there saying that 1970 or so, the earth is going to run out of oil. 1970. So they made a prediction 20 years into the future or 30 years into the future. This is 60 years ago, they said we're going to run out of oil. Now we have more oil than what they said we were going to have. Yeah. So you don't bet against human innovation. You never do. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the future is going to be, but I know it's going to be better. Yeah. I don't even know how it's going to be better. It's going to be better. So yeah. anyway, so that's the thing. So don't bet against human beings. Anyway. Huh. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I never thought about that. Yeah. But I agree, you know, yeah. with these guys, the the false prophets that never, you no. know, never get called on their stuff or are never willing to say, yeah, no, I got the last 76 things wrong, but the 77th. I mean, is in, it. India is exporting food now. I mean, they stopped recently because of COVID stuff. Yeah. But uh, I grew up at a time when we had ration cards for wheat, for rice, for milk. I mean, basic stuff. Yeah. I remember standing in line for food. And of course, now, years ago, when I used to go back, it's like, you can buy it at every corner, pretty yeah. much. And Paul Ehrlich said, people are gonna die and they're gonna, you know, all that, whatever. But what I'm, what I'm saying is, they still do not seem to learn. They're still making the same thing today. Yeah. It's like, come on, give me a break. Anyway, yeah. No, that's good. (laughs) Well, uh, that'll wrap it up for us here. Um, Dr. Krishnan Chatur. You got it. Thank you. You're welcome. Nice to meet you. All right, guys, that wraps it up. Um, Until next time, put your trust in God and keep your powder dry.